Welcome to Recovering Union, the podcast where we explore what it means to nourish the relationship between our inner child and loving parent. My name is Isaac, and this is a space for recovery fellows from diverse ethnic and sexual identities to share about their journeys with others. Today, I'm excited to share this conversation with my recovery fellow, Leo. We discuss many topics from dance to what it means to listen, as well as what keeps recovery going and other topics like acceptance, consistency, and impermanence as tools for staying present. I don't know why I said it so dramatically there, but I do really appreciate you being here, showing up for yourself. Before I transition to the conversation, let's just take a deep breath together. In through your nose. And now out through your mouth as if you're blowing out a candle. Yeah, I'll watch for a while and then when I finally kind of get over that inner critic that says, don't go out there. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna fall on the floor and make a fool of yourself. When I get over that inner critic and just start dancing, it's liberating. It's, it's very freeing. Uh, I feel like, I feel like I'm becoming a part of something. Well, Leo, hey, <laughs> how do you identify and how does your time in recovery inform that identity? Ooh, that's a good question. I guess I identify as a, as a northern uh, New Mexican. That's where I'm from. Um, but I'm also, you know, I've adapted to California, so I'm like a new California Mexican or something. <laughs> And uh, I've been in recovery since January 2016, I think. And recovery is something I found in California. I was from a small rural place where there were no meetings, and I wasn't aware of ACA at the time. So I think ACA and recovery has sort of helped me learn more about California and, you know, my neighbors and the people around me. You know, I've gone exploring with my fellow ACA, so I think, I think they've helped me and my recovery have helped me kind of find where I'm at in California. It looks like you're thinking about something. What else is coming up for you? I'm just thinking I, I identify as a, yeah, kind of like a regular guy, you know, like I'm pretty simple. I'm, I'm straightforward, basic, <laughs> in a good way. And, uh... Yeah, I guess I've never really thought, like, how do I identify as a person? I definitely, I would definitely like to throw in some words like, uh, I love creativity. I love to be active. I love to write. I love, like, spiritual things like yoga and meditation. Uh, so I, I identify a lot with that type of stuff. Dancing. I'm pretty open-minded as well. I love, like, experiencing different cultures, ethnicities, um, different types of foods, festivities, traditions, things like that. So 
being in California, it's, it's a really good place for that. Yeah. And recovery for me has been diverse too. You know, with in pandemic, especially I've met a lot of different <clears throat> fellow travelers from all over the world, really kind of like just that personal sense of just being diverse, like experiencing different things, not limiting myself to just one, one uh, view of the world. So right now you talked about your love for engaging with different cultures through dance. And one of the images that is coming into my head right now is when we were on a Zoom dance party together that you had invited me to. It was one of the first times I had ever been on a Zoom dance party before. And I just remember looking at you in the little box and you were so free. So can you describe what you feel when you encounter music from different cultures and you start dancing to it? Wow. Ah, well, first of all, there's some intimidation, especially if there's a crowd around, because I definitely want don't want to look like, you know, the oddball out. So, um, you know, human beings, we learn through mimicry. You know, so a lot of times if it's if it's a completely new kind of form of dance or music, I watch for a while and I, I kind of try to see, like, what are the movements like? And not mimic them, but sort of kind of morph into that style a little bit. For example, um, I don't, I don't break dance, but break dancing, um, it's a lot of movement on the floor, a lot of spinning, a lot of, a lot of upper body movements, you know, push up type stuff. So were I to be able to break dance, I would probably, you know, adjust my style towards that. Versus I recently encountered this uh, traditional Indian form of dance. It's called Katak. It's popular throughout India. I think it's been part of their traditions for like thousands of years. And it's, it's really uh, like formal. There's a lot of mudras, like um, finger gestures like you hold your fingers in specific positions and uh, it's a lot of spinning and you probably have seen me dance i like to spin i love to spin so if i'm kind of around dancers with that style then you know i can adjust a little bit um yeah i'll watch for a while and then when i finally kind of get over that inner critic that says, don't go out there. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to fall on the floor and make a fool of yourself. When I get over that inner critic and just start dancing, it's liberating. It's, it's very freeing. Uh, I feel like, I feel like I'm becoming a part of something. Like I'm engaging in a process in that process of creativity through dance anybody who's been to any sort of public dance performance understands and appreciates just how like just the multitude of ways a, a human being can communicate using just their body and no words so i feel like when i start dancing i i'm like i'm part of that process i'm like a finger among 
nine others that's and we're all holding a brush and we're making a painting or I'm one note in like a symphony that's being written live using our physical bodies and our energy so that's what I feel when I start moving you know if everybody starts to get on that same that same wavelength I, I, I feel community I feel um, that like a communal consciousness, like, like our, like our minds, our vibes, our bodies, we're all becoming this one sort of sphere, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I guess in spiritual traditions, they, they call it like union or like becoming one. And I know that sounds like really far out there, but I think when people come together, there's, there's something to be said of, some type of merging going on. I think anybody who's done anything creative with other people understands what I'm talking about. Like when bands start jamming out or poets start creating poetry together or two hip hop artists make a duo song or something, like a duet, like there's just something where, where boundaries fall away and you and that other person sort of just start dancing to the same tune, no pun intended. <laughs> so yeah, that's a long answer, but it, it's really a very transcendental experience. A transcendental experience. It, it sounds very deep. And I love that you pointed out how you feel a sense of union with people. Because when you go through that self-acceptance and you tell that inner critic, hey, it's not your time, to run the show right now, that's when you access all of that. And that's so encouraging because for me, sometimes I don't get past that point. You continue to invite me to Zoom dance parties and sometimes I don't get that courage to show up. But hearing you describe what happens for you afterward, it just makes me reconsider how I talk to my inner critic. Yeah, it, it definitely um, has, it's, it's very similar to the concept in, in recovery, which is let go or um, let go, let God. And it takes a lot of practice. It's like anything else. It's like an exercise. You have to do it over and over and over again. And it may, if, even for me, I still get nervous when, you know, there's music and and there's a crowd around. Like, I still get I still get scared and afraid, but I'm more familiar that, okay, there's a process that's going to happen. It's, there's going to be this inner critic. It's going to say X, Y, and Z. So when it does that, it's time to start moving. It's time to start shuffling my feet or talk to somebody or introduce myself to someone. Or if there's a drum circle, ask somebody like, hey, can I, or gesture to them, like, can I use your drum? And just kind of just getting that little spark going lights the fire you know so it doesn't have to be just this single act of bravery that says or the single singular decision that says okay i'm gonna start dancing it can be a little process where you start small maybe it's just like walking in place or you know shrugging your shoulders to the beat it, it starts out small and then you just let that little spark ignite the fire and before you know it you're 
doing some crazy stuff out there. <laughs> yeah, you're doing your your turns, your jumps. Yeah, and people will will feed and build off your energy, and then you know it becomes like this synergy kind of thing where people are just um just bouncing stuff off each other, just building on what they're doing, and they're building off what you're doing, and it's definitely like some type of transcendental construction. It's beautiful. How has being in California impacted that journey? A huge impact because, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much diversity, so many people. It's, I think, the most populous state in the country. Um, and me being in the Bay Area, it's it's really diverse. I'm exposed to a lot of different uh, different types of dance. There's so many options. And if, if I ever find myself like kind of getting burnt out on, like maybe I, I attend the drum circle and get a little burnt out on that, there will be some other type of uh, festival going on, like Caribbean dance or uh, Latin dance, or like I mentioned earlier, this traditional form of Indian dance. So there's, in California, there's, we have, we're lucky to have access to all these different forms of, of physical communication through dance. And it's like, uh, you know, going back to the, the painting um, alliteration, it's like adding a whole new set of colors to your palette. Okay, for example, jazz. I'm not a big jazz fan, but when I see it live, I'm impressed. It's really, it's really cool. And I can start dancing to it. And I could learn things from jazz and just add it, you know, to that repertoire, to that palette. So that the next time I go dance somewhere else to a totally different type of music, I still have those moves or those, um, that attitude, you know, because there's also an element of attitude to dance. You know, like you can see it, you can see dancers, some of them might might be das dancing like a little sassy. Some might be dancing like uh, kind of martial arts defensive or kind of aggressive. And some, some dance like just really soft and delicate. Others have a style that's like really welcoming. So you can pick up like attitudes also and you, you take those with you. You don't just, they don't just fall out your mind. They kind of stick with you. They stick in your body because in my opinion, you're your body has a much better memory than your brain does. So I think you just build on that physical memory and you just take it with you to, to the next dance. And how do you stay grounded in, in you, in Leo? Uh, well, that's, that's where you have like your, your personal, and I'm gonna say this in quotes, <laughs> your private practice at home because, you know, I, I dance at home a lot and like sometimes I'll try to, while I'm out in public, I'll try to remember specific moves so that way when I go home, I can practice them. And if I screw them up, if I mess up, if I fall, if I slip, if I slide, whatever, no problem. And so I practice them at home. Um, and I say private in quotations because with technology, you can still share like your at home dance. You can, 
you can tape, you can uh, record it and send it or whatever. Put, you post it on Instagram. I've never done that, but you could. So I, I think going home and having your own private dance and your own, your own like more personal, intimate, nobody watching type experience, that's where you sort of solidify and get in contact with, or that's where I solidify and get in contact with my style. That makes me smile because what I'm hearing is a lot of self-care and that ability to say, I want to get better at this dance move, so let me practice it when I feel most comfortable at home. That's really loving to yourself. You know, in terms of the relationship between the inner child and the loving parent. Yeah, yeah, I haven't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Um, and even just your your space, because to dance, you need to create the space. You need to clean, you, need, you know, you need to clear the floor. Maybe if you're in a small space, you have to move chairs and furniture around or just move stuff out of the way. Um I leave my floor like really open just just so I can dance and have no, no like obstructions. <clears throat> but, you know, a lot of folks don't have that luxury. But in any case, just to physically create the space is an act of love. Uh, somebody once told me the the condition of your house is reflects the condition of your mind. So if you have a cluttered house, you know, dirty counters, dirty dishes, that's a reflection of your mental state as well. So ha taking the time to clean the space, clear it out, in my opinion, you're also to some extent clearing your mind, getting yourself ready, which as you pointed out, could definitely be an act of self self-care. Right. And the act of ritual too, like you were pointing out, that the body remembers more than the mind. So if we build rituals that remind our body, like, hey, it's time we have fun, or now it's time that we explore these feelings, then it's a lot easier to keep those practices going. I want you to talk about, no, no, I, I invite you, I invite you to talk about 3-3 shares. The other day you had told me about it and I really loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so three, three shares I first encountered um, from uh, she was formerly a local ACA, but uh, she taught me about them. Like she said, like, well, we could time ourselves for three minutes. And do you want feedback? And I'm like, sure. And I, I, asked, I had to ask her, like, what, what, what do I do with feedback? And she said, well, you just repeat what you heard or what you think you heard so i was like oh okay cool so we did that and i loved it and at the same time um this was closer to the beginning of pandemic folks were leaving like uh there was a a group chat going on on i think it was whatsapp and people would just leave like their their three minute shares in the form of like a, not a voicemail, but like a recording. So you could just listen to them. I could listen to them whenever I wanted. 
So I think doing those two in tandem, the three, three shares and leaving like these three or four, whatever, two minute shares on WhatsApp kind of built that, that, uh, I don't know if it's a skill, but I'll just say it's a skill for the sake of ease. Um, that helped me build that, that skill. And I've, each time I try it with somebody, like I'm, a little nervous because I don't, some people, they feel like, well, this is a personal conversation. Why are we going to time ourselves? It's a little too formal. And so I'm always afraid of that reaction. But for the most part, everybody likes it and appreciates it and understands like why, you know, we do the three, three. I, it's like, we each have our space. Like you have your three minutes. I have my three minutes. And then as far as feedback, um, it's a good practice, I think, especially for people in recovery, just to mirror back what they heard rather than give advice. Because I, I think in our, for me, especially in my dysfunctional home, my family, we would give, we, we would want to give advice. We want to make things better. We want to fix stuff. And uh, mirroring isn't fixing anything. All you're doing is listening. You're opening yourself to their message, their voice, and you're reflecting it back and trying to be neutral about it and not not give advice and not have an opinion. And I think I think people in recovery really respect that because it it it's it shows a respect for boundaries. It shows a respect for the other person, and it also shows that. Um, the person giving the reflection isn't trying to control or fix. So I, th- I think that's what's really special about the the three three shares or four four shares could be two two whatever. I think that's what makes them like really powerful. I agree with you because the times where you have invited me to do those shares with you, I, I won't lie. I mean, at first. I did feel like I needed a rush and get through all of this sorted out in three minutes. It was really impactful to, first of all, hear your question of, do you want feedback or do you want me to just listen? Because that consensual question, it's something that I lack growing up and it's almost like I didn't even know I could have that choice. (laughs) Yeah, I I see you nodding your head. When I was growing up, I remember feeling hesitant to share sometimes because I was always afraid of being invalidated. So by giving the speaker the choice, asking them, hey, do you want feedback or do you want me to just be here and absorb what you're saying? That's so tremendously powerful. Yeah, I th- when you say that, I think of, of options. Like, it's it's having options. And I think in a dysfunctional home, a lot of times, I myself didn't have an option. Like, if I were to talk to somebody, I kind of knew what their response would be. You know, and there was no other... There was no other response. There was no response B and C. It was always response A. You know, so I think when you ask somebody, like... Do you want feedback or do you want me to just listen? That's giving them that second option that maybe, you know, I I know personally I didn't have sometimes. 
you know, because if I were to tell a sibling or, or a parent, um, talk to them about like an issue I was having, they would want to fix it or make me feel better. And I think a lot of times, you know, a person doesn't, doesn't want to be made to feel better or be fixed or be given advice. They, all they want is like, just hear me out. I just want to be heard. So yeah, I think of it as giving somebody an option or being provided with an option that maybe I or you or us as ACAs that we didn't have. I just wanted to be heard. Yeah, that reality of not having to fix people. It's been really hard for me to become better at that. I mean, as a hero child in my family, fixing was my way of addressing the chaos. And now being in recovery, realizing that fixing is actually the hardest expectation to put on myself, it does make the kind of listening that you're talking about seem like a very simple solution to a bigger dysfunction, right? So Leo, what did it feel like when you finally started seeing recovery in your life? Hmm. I think it was like, uh, I'm trying to think of board games. Like, I think maybe Clue is one of them. Like where you, you, you start, you're playing this game, you're, you're making these moves. You're, you're like, for ACA, you're reading the book, you're going to meetings, you're hearing people share. Maybe you're reaching out to people and hanging out with them outside of the meetings. And you're just doing like what you're quote unquote supposed to be doing. And then all of a sudden, like it starts making sense. And, and like, it's like, oh, I get it. And, you know, like with a board game where you start realizing like, oh, my strategy's working. Or I think I'm about to solve this puzzle. And, and just that feeling that, that aha moment is the fuel to keep keep working like to keep exploring to keep the mind open to keep keep reaching out keep following the steps keep reading the book um and just keep at it i think i think for me that's that's what stands out the most when i think of like you know when when i started noticing recovery happening was just that sense like, oh, wow, this is working. So let me just keep doing it. Let me keep at it. Maybe I don't understand what they're saying in the meetings or maybe I don't understand how all the steps fit together. But I'll just keep going through the motions and, until it makes sense. I don't know that there was ever a specific moment, though, when my, my aha moment. I think it was... Uh, there was no like dramatic moment, you know, nothing that stood out. It was like this slow, steady, like more of a trickle than a big splash. I would say though, just to add where I first, where, where the whole idea of fellowship, where I experienced more of a splash was when I met you guys, um, our ACA workbook group down in SoCal. That was like, 
for the fellowship aspect of the program, that's that was a huge, huge event for me because I felt accepted. I felt um, cared about. I felt visible. And I hadn't really, I hadn't felt that in a group setting in the program up until that point. Like I, I, sometimes I felt like the oddball out when I was, you know, um, like doing local stuff. But I didn't feel that when I was down in SoCal. And again, that, that's because, you know, just the different circumstances, you know, you guys are my workbook group and we share like a lot of, a lot of details about, about ourselves, a lot of personal details and the fact that you guys will still sit around the table and eat with me. It's just magic. And I feel honored when I'm able to just be at that same table showing everybody at that table like hey despite all the craziness i've heard from you i'm still here i accept you and i know you accept me and <clears throat> to me that's so powerful and i feel honored to have that opportunity every time it comes up whether it's at a meeting a, a 3-3 call whatever this podcast it all works towards that same sense of like feeling accepted and also that sense of honor that I can also show you guys that I accept you and honor you. That deep sense of belonging. I remember when we went to one of our fellows house for a little swim party, a pool party in the summer and how different it felt for me to be in that kind of space. I had never physically seen you all. Right, so when we actually got to hug one another, to look one another in the eyes, it was like it's something that still encourages me today. I even remember the first time I met you, Leo. We were going to meet up at a park and I had never come out of that BART station before, but then I see you on your bike and <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just remember your bright presence. It was just such a special trip for me to be able to hang out with you. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you, Isak. Yeah, the same for you. I felt the same with you. I was like, man, Isak has such positive, like bright energy. It was it was really cool. Yeah, and we we laughed and smiled a lot that day. So that was uh man, that was that was an honor, man. That was that was a blessing. Yeah, it was a blessing to have this kind of group where our fellowship still continues and we're still journeying with each other. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and, and everybody in that group, really, I'm just like, wow, we're still here. Like so-and-so still shows up every week and so-and-so still shows up despite all these challenges that she's facing or he's facing, they're still here. And it's like, wow. And yeah, that consistency and commitment, I think, is um, priceless because, I mean, let's be honest, that's what we're looking for. Because in our dysfunctional upbringing where it was chaos and disorder, you know, we definitely have that deficit where we're looking for that, like, consistency and that, um, that commitment. And I think that 
I think our workbook group provides some of that. I, I don't think, I know it provides some, some of that. That's big. The feeling of loyalty and trusting that people will still be there for you. Yeah, yeah. And for me, it's, for me, it's not so much loyalty as the acceptance, like, wow, after all these things we share about one another, like, here we are, or share to one another, like, here we are still showing up, still accepting one another. Like, that's, that's the, that's the important part for me. Oh, thanks for correcting me. Yeah, because, you know, the loyalty, who's to say when, when we're done, the, there, there's probably going to be some people that are in the group that we, we never hear from or that the communication just falls off after the workbook group. So, you know, ideally we stay in contact for years and years, maybe even decades. But, yeah, I guess you got to give everybody their... Everybody's on their own journey, so that their their path may take them somewhere somewhere else. People are on their own journey, and it's really freeing to hear you say that, that you don't expect loyalty from others. Or maybe not loyalty. What I'm hearing more is that's what you value. Yeah. That you value acceptance from others rather than loyalty. Yeah, yeah, because uh, acceptance to me is more permanent, whereas loyalty to me, I well, again, consider the source. This is coming from somebody who's lost a lot of people that, that I've lost a lot of people close to me. So I, I guess the, I don't, it's not an illusion of loyalty because loyalty does exist, but I, I think, I think I understand that, um, you know, everybody's marching to the beat of their own drum and, and people go different directions. And our, our presence, our camaraderie, our, our, uh, our group, it's unfortunately temporary. It's up to us how, how, uh, permanent we want to be about it. But in all honesty, it's, it's a photograph in time. And that's one reason, like, every time I show up, every time I show up when I'm punching in the, the meeting numbers, like, <laughs> my inner kids is just jumping up and down, clapping and cheering, like, yes! <laughs> because I know it's, it's, uh, it's temporary. You know, it, it's just, it's like anybody in your life. Like, once you understand, like, they're temporary, you value and cherish them so much more. In Buddhism, you know, it's the concept of impermanence. You know, we meditate on impermanence and the changing nature of things, not to get depressed and down about it, but to understand that every moment is precious and beautiful and, uh, and that, you know, change is also good because, you know, like you don't want to stare at the same sunset all the time. It, what, what makes a sunset beautiful is the fact that it changes. You know, it might start out yellow and orange and it starts turning to pinks and purples and blues and then eventually darkness and then starlight. That act of changing is, it's the change that makes it beautiful. You don't want, 
I think that our, our culture, our society overvalues like loyalty and like, um, like things being fixed. But yeah, I mean, any Eastern religion, religion or philosophy understands like everything is impermanent. I, I didn't mean to drop such a big, <laughs> a big heavy concept in your lap with that one. <laughs> oh man, um, what you just said just reminds me of what Joseph shared in the last episode. I think I'll just cut to it right now. I always feel so guilty like after I come back down from levitating. I guess for me, not I guess, I know that for me, in this part of my recovery, I'm still very much learning that value of impermanence, you know, accepting that things are temporary, that people are temporary. I I have always struggled with change. Uh, well, all of us have, right? But for me, I think one of my coping mechanisms or maybe a coping perception was if I willingly choose the change, then the change won't be so bad for me, right? Like my decision to move from California to Ohio. For that experience, there was so much loss, so many changes. I am speechless because what you're saying is something that I need to hear. It's the message that I need to hear today, right now. I know I'm eventually gonna learn the lesson in a good way, right? Not like, go learn your lesson, you've been bad, but learn your lesson through life because that value is going to help you. Yet right now in my journey, I think I'm maybe 40% away from completely absorbing that value of impermanence. Yeah, then as you get older, it, it it'll just happen. Like life happens and you, you'll see changes like you never expected, good and bad and neutral. And as you, as you get older, you just, it just becomes more and more apparent. Like, wow, every, everything just is constantly in state of flux. And if, if I, if I try to hold on to something and, and try to keep it from changing, it's that's a lot of lost energy you know it's it's much more uh, conducive to a serene life and a more uh, i guess mellow conscious to to let go with the flow and i think you did that in my opinion you did that with ohio because as far as i understand you didn't have a list of like okay here's 20 cities i can go to and I think you had a limited amount of choice and uh, you went with the flow, you went to Ohio and, you know, you're on your own path of self-discovery over there. It's just, it's just one step in your ladder and, and you're, you're learning things there about yourself that, that you may not have been able to learn or access like in a place like a California or a New York or a Florida or, or a Texas. When it came to teaching your inner teen about this truth, 
how have you communicated that to them? I'm asking that because I feel like my inner teen needs some advice. Hmm. I think my inner teen, uh, I was fortunate in an unfortunate kind of way that I sort of understood that as, as a teen in when I was a teen because my mom had left my dad for a while. And we lived in uh, Colorado for a short time with an aunt. We didn't really live with him. We just stayed with him. And then after that, we spent like a summer in Hawaii. And after that summer, I went to a different school in a different town. Because where I'm from, I'm from a village. But when after she left my dad, I went to school in the nearest actual town. Um, so I think my teen years I already knew like oh wow like the world's a big place and my surroundings can change like in a heartbeat so honestly it's not too hard it, it hasn't been hard for me to like just tell you know for my inner teen to understand like hey man all this stuff changes sometimes as an adult it's like oh man I want to I want to get like a fixed group of people and we can go do like a fixed set of things like activities like hike, do yoga and go to the beach and dance. But then I, then I meet people like Joseph who's like, let's go scuba diving. (laughs) And it's like, whoa, yes, let's do it. So, um, yeah, I, I guess there is. There is that sense of like wanting to hold on to something permanent now that I'm, you know, getting a little older. But fortunately, like I said earlier, I, I kind of already know like, nah, man, this stuff changes. And uh, that's part of what makes it beautiful. Sad, sad, bittersweet, but still beautiful. Absolutely. I've been asking you a lot of questions. So do you have any questions for me that you want to ask? I would love to learn or hear what you've been learning about yourself in Cincinnati. Because it's such a, it's such a different atmosphere. And I, I know you're definitely aware of that. So I'm just interested in hearing like, what, what are you learning about yourself? <sighs> That's a really heartfelt question. The first thing that comes to mind is that I gave myself the opportunity to learn what I'm actually capable of. In the role that I have here in Ohio, I do a lot of listening. Like what we were talking about earlier, about just hearing people, not fixing them. And I think because I didn't have anything here that I was comfortable with, And by that, I mean, um, I didn't know this place. I had no, I have no family here. I was basically coming into a clean slate. And I remember when I was first contemplating this decision, I knew that I would be losing that sense of comfort. And I think because I put myself in the position where I'm, now learning everything all over again in terms of new roots and new weather, learning new cultures, new customs, all of that made me realize and recognize what I value 
So being here in Ohio, it's helped me learn to become more confident in what I bring to the table, but also learn that I actually really care about my cultural identity. I don't know how else to put it besides the fact that I grew up in a city where the majority of the population was Latino or Hispanic. Now I'm in a city where Latinos and Hispanics make a very small percentage of the demographics here. This doesn't mean that there's not as many countries being represented here. It just means that the population is less, right? So I do feel that. And besides that point, I think the other lesson that I've learned by being here is to really trust my higher power. As I said, I knew I was going to lose a lot of comfort, a lot of what I knew by coming here. But I decided to go forward with it because I knew that being outside of my comfort zone like that and being in the place where I work at would be really helpful for me to learn what I want to do, what I'm capable of. And I realized like the gifts I have to offer and where I want to bring those gifts to as well. Wow. Thank you for asking me that question. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm I'm hearing I'm hearing like like some boundaries that you may have had up in California when you return. Those boundaries will either be down or will be much less will be lesser. But you'll be dropping some of those boundaries and also that you'll have a a good aggressiveness about like standing up for for who you are and projecting yourself more than maybe you did in the past. Well, Leo, as we wrap up, there is a closing section of questions that I like to ask. They're all fill in the blank questions, but I do want to give you the space to share anything else. Wow, it's a rare opportunity where I just have a stage all to myself and people are going to hear me. Wow. Ah, man. You know, the one thing that is coming up is like, everybody in our group, I'm not going to say everybody, but there's a lot of people in our group that they say, you know, like, I love you. And I've always struggled with saying that because I always feel like once I, um, if I say it, then I'm going to lose that person or that when I do lose that person or when that impermanence does, you know, separate our paths, it's going to make it that much harder to like say goodbye to them. So there's this part of me that holds back and just doesn't say it and, you know, I ask myself, like, is it because I don't feel it or is it because I just don't want to say it? And I'm really, I don't have an answer to that. I wish I could, I wish I could, you know, lean my mouth into this microphone and say, I have the answer and I don't. But I I want everybody from our group that hears this podcast to know that that's my experience right now. And, uh. I think is so beautiful that, that everybody's well, not everybody, but that that our group that, that we tell each other we we love each other. That is really beautiful. Thanks for sharing about how you're experiencing love. Yeah. Now I'll 
invite you to close your eyes and just take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Surrender is... Surrender is breaking chains. I love my inner child because... Because he's a Valentine's box full of chocolate. I can remind myself that I'm grounded by... By putting my feet on the ground, feeling the temperature of the ground underneath me with, um, with either bare feet or socks. And just breathe and focus on my breath and that feeling within my feet. And I am hopeful for... The sunrise and the seagulls and the ocean. <laughs> well, you can open your eyes, Leo. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Isak. This is awesome. I hope you found today's episode helpful for your recovery. And I also want to invite you to share your feedback with me by emailing me at recoveringunion at gmail.com. I'll also include my email in the description of today's episode. Lastly, if you're feeling called to share your story as a guest on this show, send me an email because I'd love to get to know you and expand my sense of fellowship in our community as well. And from my inner child to yours, keep doing the work because that's how we recover union.